Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring research and practice in channeling. My guest, Dr. Helane Wabe, is the Director of Research at the Institute of Noetic Science in Petaluma, California. She is both a researcher and a practitioner of channeling, as well as a naturopathic physician. And now, I'll switch over to the internet video. You have a very extensive background, both as a researcher, as a clinical practitioner, and as a an experiencer of channeling. Yes, thank you. I I do come from an eclectic background. Um, growing up, I always was fascinated by health and medicine, and especially how our moods and mental states influenced our health, and so. I ended up going to naturopathic medical school to become a physician. And naturopathic doctors are trained as general practitioners. We have a different philosophy that guides our um, healing practice, one that believes the body has its own innate ability to heal itself. We focus on prevention, on getting at the root cause, doing least harm, and so with that philosophy, we have a big tool bag that we use to help people um, move along their path of optimal health, whatever that looks like for them. So that's my clinical training and background. And I got out of medical school and started private practice and was focused on mind-body medicine and incorporated meditation quite a bit into my clinical practice. Um, before I had gone to medical school, I actually had a little dabbling into research. And so as I continued in clinical practice, I kept hearing the call of research again um, in the back of my mind and had an incredible opportunity to do some postdoctoral research fellowships, um, specifically around mind-body medicine and my research focus was with um, mindfulness meditation and with combat veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. So it was really at this intersection of meditation and trauma. Um, I was very fortunate to receive a National um, Institute of Health grant to do that work and um, discovered incredible things about how the way we perceive our symptoms, our um, discomfort in our body can really be shifted from the practice of meditation. So that was really incredible work. Um, in parallel, I have a fascinating background with, as you said, experiencing or as an experiencer um, I went to my first seance when I was 10 years old, actually, at my grandparents' house. And I come from a long line of individuals who do something that we call channeling. Um, 
And so I witnessed my grandmother doing this, my uncle, um, everybody in my mom's side of the family has some capacity to channel. And I can talk a lot more about what, how I define that and what that means exactly. So as a child, it was a little frightening to me because there wasn't any lead-in into that experience. My mom just brought me to this meeting and there was this large group. It was about 40 people and they were sitting in a circle and, you know, all of a sudden my grandmother's speaking in this very different voice or my, you know, uncle speaking in this very different voice and speaking about stuff they would never normally talk about. Um, so my little girl self was like, oh, can this happen to me? Like, am I going to just automatically start talking in these strange voices? So obviously I grew up and learned and um, discovered that I had my own capacity to do channeling. And that um, really supported me in so many ways personally and has, you know, supported my life um, greatly. And yet, you know, with my clinical background and academic background, you know, that was completely taboo. And so I kept those two aspects of my life very, very separate. Well, now you have already conducted quite a bit of research on altered states of consciousness, meditation, all kinds of physiological measures. And I know you've also done a survey of people who do channeling. And as I recall, one of the findings that you came up with is that almost universally, people who engage in channeling regard it as a positive benefit in their lives. Absolutely. One of the questions we ask people is, what is the impact of these experiences on your life? You know, from neg very negative to very positive and across the board in the many different populations we've looked at, it is definitely in the very positive category. Because I, I would imagine that uh, there, there aren't mental hospitals the way there used to be, huge warehouse-like institutions uh, across the country. Uh, I used to work in one. But uh, one has the impression that a lot of people who engage in channeling don't integrate it well into their life and could easily end up uh, with a diagnosis of psychosis. Yes. Um, you know, I think there is this perception that people who channel have some sort of dissociative identity disorder or some sort of mental um, pathology. And we've done a number of surveys looking at that. And what we have found that in general, people who do mediumship or channeling don't have pathological levels of dissociation or psychosis. While their, their scores might be slightly higher than our control groups, um, those like raw scores don't actually reach any sort of clinical cutoff that a psychologist or psychiatrist might say, okay, you have a mental illness. The other interesting piece is that they're highly functional in their lives. So, you know, there have been a number of studies, ours and others in Brazil, looking at functionality and the ability to integrate 
um, into their lives. And it's really quite positive. These people are high functioning, normal, adjusted um, humans. Um, you know, there are, of course, outliers. So there's the people who um, have very intense, strong um, experiences that happen frequently or they don't have a good support system or a context context for their experiences. And those are the few people in our surveys that we find that have higher values on their dissociation or psychosis scores. Could you talk a bit about how you actually got started, your first experience uh, channeling? So my channeling has taken different forms. So the way I describe channeling and as we um, do at IONS is I think a little broader than some people might um, define it as. So I'd like to just share about that. So we define channeling as the ability to access information and energy from beyond our conventional notions of time and space. So this is a really broad umbrella term for accessing this information and energy. And so we believe that everyone has the capacity to do this, but that the way that that manifests from them is very unique. And we know these experiences exist on a spectrum, right? So on one side, you might have things like intuition or gut hunches that people experience, you know, very commonly. Everyone might say, oh, yeah, I've had a a gut hunch, just knowing something that I couldn't possibly know. And then on the other side of this spectrum, you might have things like trans channeling, where the channeler believes that they are um, acting as a vehicle for a discarnate being to communicate, um, using their body directly to communicate. And there's all those things in between. And people have described different terms to all of these various experiences, clairvoyance, clairaudience, mediumship, channeling, the list goes on and on. Um, And so one thing actually we're doing at IONS is really exploring what is the variety, what is the diversity of people's experiences of this channeling or this noetic um, experiences. So when I first went to um, the seance at my grandparents' house, it just opened me up to this incredible, um, I guess, sense of knowingness. I started exploring for myself and being curious about my own felt sense of what was beyond my physical body. And I began playing with a variety of um, techniques like applied kinesiology, pendulums, you know, tarot cards, all these, you know, kind of interesting, unique ways to tune in, if you will, to information and energy beyond our traditional five senses. And um, that developed over time such that Um, I had a very strong um, clairsentience capacity where I would have a a sense in my body of something that is just true. Or let's say I was given a choice between 
one thing and another. And I would sit quietly, get into a meditative state, and ask, which is the way to go? And I would feel in my body, like with, you know, goosebumps and an expanded sense of which way is the best way to go. Um, I also experienced... Um, clear cognizance where I would just receive the way I experience it is like packets of information that I wouldn't necessarily have known otherwise. Um, we could talk for hours about what the source of this information is, but I'll just speak to my felt experience of it. Um, I then, you know, had the opportunity to be able to come work at IONS at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and that was almost four years ago now and at that point it really allowed me to bring together these two aspects of my life and apply um, you know scientific method to be able to ask questions and learn about this phenomenon and how it works and how it manifests and how it we could perhaps use it to support ourselves. When you started out uh, in a uh, seance, that was your first experience. So I presume your uh, mother's side of the family were spiritualists. Uh, that's where the term seance is, is typically used. Did, did you ever uh, experience that type of trance channeling that would occur in a seance? My family was actually Orthodox Christian, so it was a very Christian background, and they wouldn't call themselves spiritualists, and they would never have used the term seance. That was the term that I used to um, make it easy for people to understand. They just called it meeting. We're going to have a meeting. And my grandfather wrote a book called um, Life After Death, where he did all these case studies of you know, um, exorcisms and trance channelings and all these unique experiences that he collected through his life. And this was kind of an unfoldment of his um, personal work. And so um, included in, in those meetings were trance channeling of my grandmother, um, who had her first experience when she was 16. Um, my grandfather was taking her around to one of these people's homes that he heard they were having this spiritual experiences, and she just went into a trance. So he's like, oh, great, now I can study my wife. Um, and then, you know, they found their son, my uncle, um, was also a very strong trance channel, and so he became the star of the show, if you will, and would hold an audience. People would ask questions. And then um, the, the term that was used for um, the, the purported discarnate beings that were speaking th through him was called the universal mind. So they called it the universal mind, and he um, did automatic writing and wrote a book in this channeled state. Um, he was actually studied uh, with some of the work done at John F. Kennedy University here on psychokinesis and 
participated in some of those studies as well. Uh, how interesting! I used to teach there. Okay, yeah, back in the eighties, there was a uh-huh. there was a PK program, and uh, he was one of the participants in that. Yeah, I wasn't part of that program, as I recall. It was run by Julian Isaacs. Yes. But, but this is this was your uncle who was part of that program. Yeah, yeah. How how interesting. I well, I might have uh, rubbed shoulders with him at some point. Yes, I've actually. So, so go ahead. Uh, well, I presume that from what you're saying that you yourself haven't done trance channeling. So. That's why I was bringing in ions. So, of course, you know, when I came to ions, um, I had the opportunity to build on the work that ions has already done to build this channeling research program. So we have this formal research program where we're asking, you know, six questions about channeling and doing a variety of um, experiments on channeling. Through that, I ran into a couple protocols using hypnosis to learn how to trans-channel. Patricio Trisoldi, who you probably know in Italy, has been piloting this, and we um, did our own pilot here at IONS. There's also another group called Deer International in Oman who does a similar method. So I was fascinated. Could I actually do the trans channeling considering that's been in my family and I've witnessed it and I'm also studying it. So I went through this procedure myself and am now able to trans channel. And so I've been, I learned that about, I don't know, six to eight months ago and can actually do it myself now, which is fascinating. And it's a relatively new experience for you to do it at that level. It is, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. How how exciting, Alane! That's very exciting. Yes. I can I can imagine you are probably have in your own mind like a hundred questions about where can I take this now? Yes, absolutely. And you know, I think that was a little bit of my hesitation and trepidation because I have the scientist mind that won't be quiet. It's like, oh, what about this? And what about that? And we need to ask this. And there is a level of um, sort of surrender or stepping out of the way, like with many, you know, transcendent practices um, to be able to quiet that part of ourselves. Um, So, Yes, it does open up a whole new um, level of inquiry. One piece that it's opened up quite a bit for me is this concept around who actually can channel and in what way. And, you know, I had the um, hypothesis, if you will, that there was some genetic component to the type of channeling you could do and that perhaps the trans-channeling required Um, some genetic piece because we could see how it went through families. And, you know, I'm seeing in these other groups that they feel that they can teach anybody to do trans-channeling. And so I think this is just the beginning of of a more formal evaluation of whether that's true or not. We do have a number of, um, genetic studies that we're also doing here at IONS 
to see if we can see any differences between um, psychics and controls and their genetic um, profiles, if you will. Well, that would be fascinating. I do have the impression that uh, some of these skills run in families, but of course that brings up the whole nature versus nurture debate. Uh, it's hard to know, you know, what, what part of it might be genetic, but let, let me ask you this question. Um, I have a good friend I've known for decades, Kevin Ryerson, a famous trance channeler. And uh, Kevin, when he goes into trance, and I've watched him do it many times, uh, goes into an altered state of consciousness. And when he comes out of the trance, he has almost no memory of what transpired, what took place. That's why he records it so he can listen to the recording if he wants to. Uh, it was that your experience as well in trance that you didn't remember what took place when you came out? My experience of it is that I'm obser- I'm an observer. It's almost like I step aside and I'm observing the experience. So I can witness it as it's unfolding. But then a week later, if you asked me, do you remember what was said? I won't have a memory of it. And so I also would will record it. And this is a common, in all the channelers that I've spoken to and through our studies, we, we um, ask them to rate two scales. One is this level of incorporation. How much do they feel that I'm going to keep saying purported, purported discarnate being is actually in their, using their body on a scale of 0 to 100. And the other is the level of their consciousness in terms of their awareness of what's happening 0 to 100. And we, it is rare for us these days to find trance channelers who are completely not aware my grandmother was like that. Your friend you just mentioned is like that. I just learned of another person who is like that. Um, but all the other channelers I've connected with do have some level of awareness during the process itself. Now, I know you've done uh, physiological studies as as well, and uh, the striking finding that you've reported is that uh, channelers, while in trance, uh, didn't show the sorts of physiological changes you had imagined that they would. Yes, that was very surprising to me, and I don't know if you, I mean, you've witnessed trance channelers, they look quite different their vocalizations are different their manners are different and i had imagined that we would see a shift in the eeg or the ekg or something and there was no change now why is that we're not really sure from um but we have some thoughts one is that the way we set up the study design was um, five minutes channeling, five minutes no channeling, and then repeating that three times. So the channeler was basically going in and out of a channeling state quickly. So does that quick transition sort of create more of an average state over the different conditions? That's one thought. Um, The other thought, the channelers were quite surprised that they couldn't speak. 
because normally when they channel, you know, the being comes in and they're actually talking. And we said, no, no, you can't talk because we need to have a clean EEG signal. And so perhaps because um, of that difference from their normal state, we didn't see a shift in the EEG. Um, What's fascinating is we had a channeler channel about why we didn't see a change. And they said, well, you should have asked us before because we would have told you that there wouldn't be a shift. Because in order for the purported discarnate being to speak through, they need to align with the channeler. And part of that is... um, adjusting to their physiology. Now, we are going to look at different um, analyses, like what we did was just the simple uh, frequency analysis of EEG, like alpha, theta, beta, etc. So we're going to do some um, coherence analysis and interconnectivity analysis of the EEG as well. And um, we did see a shift in the voice um, so we did a frequency analysis of the voice, and that was different as well. So at some point, you did ask them to speak. Yes, we did. And so at the end of the um, full, you know, six switches, they had an opportunity to give a message about the research or anything else that they wanted to share. And um, we actually... Um, the paper that describes the qualitative analysis of those messages is under review right now. I, I see. Well, you've also done quite a bit of research in meditation. You're a long-term practitioner. Uh, how would you compare meditation versus channeling? I feel like the state that I get into during meditation is very similar to the state that I hold during channeling. Um, It is a place for me of stillness, of expansion, of um, blurred boundaries, if you will, of myself and what's around me, a sense of timelessness and spacelessness. Um, And it's also quite blissful and joyful. Um, you know, we did a systematic review on transcendent states during meditation, and it's often described very similarly, this state of oneness or samadhi or transcendent state, this expanded, ineffable state that's accompanied by bliss and joy. So my meditation practice that is... Um, allowed me to be able to be in that state has supported me to, I think, learn the trans-channeling, and I find they're quite similar. But, of course, there are many uh, studies now, maybe a thousand, uh, showing all sorts of physiological changes that occur during meditation. Right, right. So, again, I was surprised we didn't see it in the trans-channeling. Of course, that that was one study. Maybe in a different study, it'll show up. Who knows? Yes, yes. We had some, um, you know, channeling researchers 
contact us and say, oh, but you didn't do it this way or you didn't try this measure and, oh, you need to do it like this. So there's definitely more, um, you know, like with all research, there's so many different ways that you can attempt to answer a research question. Now, I've done a number of interviews on dissociative identity disorder or multiple personality disorder. In fact, as I recall, I I first learned about it from a book published by the Institute of Noetic Sciences decades ago in which they cited research that showed that uh, studies of people with this particular condition where the personality shifts showed on occasion dramatic physiological changes, including the color of the eyes might even change. And uh, it seems to me that when I read that research, my gosh, maybe these people are actually acting as mediums if they have such profound physiological changes. But um, I gather that the research doesn't really support that. People with dissociative identity disorder don't particularly come up with uh, afterlife evidence. Channelers, uh, at least those who operate in a spiritualistic context, seem to do so. Yes, this is true. The themes that we hear from the messages coming through are quite similar. You know, what is our true nature as humans? How do we awaken humanity to that true nature and various tricks and tips to help humans do that. Um, And a consistent message of love. There's also some feedback about research and how to do research, and yet most of it comes through this filter of supporting humanity to wake up to our true nature and be in a state of love. That's just very simplistic, but just distilling the core messages that we hear from most of the channelers. There's actually, to my knowledge, there must be a a thousand books published by channelers with all of this information. Yes. It it would fill a, a library. Yes. Just of channeled works, including, I suppose, religious scriptures. Absolutely. That's one of my dream projects, is to do a systematic review of all that channeled material from channelers all over the world, different traditions, and pull out the common themes and see what are the commonalities, what are the differences, are they saying the same thing? I think that would be a fascinating study. Yeah. Now, many years ago, uh, John Climo wrote his book called Channeling. It was really, to my knowledge, the first academic attempt to understand what's going on. And I, th- I thought, you know, for that era was a very credible book. Yes. And, uh, one of the points that he made or explored, I think, quite a bit in that book was the idea that what's really going on in channeling is people are getting in touch with their own higher self. He called it channeling the higher self. Right. In, in effect, you know, there's the depths to our own consciousness, what we call the higher self. Uh, we have no idea what what its boundaries are. It could extend to infinity. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. You know, 
when we talk about what is the source of this channeled information, is it part of our cells? Is it a distinct separate entity? How can we actually verify what the source is? You know, you hear about channelers who are channeling beings from different um, systems, the Pleiades, and you know, and so I, in our, in my work, I try to. Um, just set that aside, if you will, and say, we can't really prove that in this moment. So rather than focusing on the proof of what the source is, let's focus on the phenomenology and the functionality and could we actually use it as a tool to support us. That being said, if we are all one, if we are all interconnected and, you know, we are connected to everything that is, then yes, I could be channeling my higher self and that higher self is connected to everything else and has ability to tap into an infinite source of information and energy that could support me. When I think about uh, for people who channel aliens, for example, and uh, my friend Angela Thompson Smith, who is a remote viewer, has has a book about her remote viewing contacts with about a dozen different alien species. I I suppose that would fit into your definition of channeling. Yes. Uh, it it dawns on me, you know, from astronomy, we know there are a trillion galaxies out there. Each galaxy could have billions of populated planets. So, uh, it, I think the human brain is not really capable of uh, 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 absorbing the immensity of, of what is out there, what might be accessible to, we could call it, the higher self. Yes, Absolutely. I mean, considering all that that you just shared, the likelihood that there is something else out there is very, very high, in my opinion. And I do think it's interesting from a sociological point of view that there's some community of channelers who are really into aliens. There are other communities that are really into communication with the deceased. There are uh, other channelers who like to channel uh, devas or deities uh, or the orishas of uh, Candomblé and uh, Latin American cultures. Uh, they it, it almost seems from the descriptions that we're talking about three different categories of of entities that uh, are different than living humans. Yes. Um, I did a full uh, trance channeling focus group with five channelers in Mount Shasta, and I think we had 21 different, uh, you know, being purported beings that came in from, it was like five different systems, you know, everything that you've just described. And what I found fascinating, you know, one of the questions I asked is, how can, you know, this channeler in this country say, oh, I'm channeling Mary or Jesus, or, and then another channeler says that they're channeling the same beings, right? How can this be happening? And the, the answer was to maximize the messages to come through, it is coming through many different people and that the, you know, there's this 
the terms of energy and frequency. So the frequency of the being, if you will, connecting with the frequency of the channeler and the frequency of the message creates this infinite number of combinations for the audience. So in order to get the messages out to all these audiences, then you have these all these unique combinations of being able to express it. So yes, you have these different groups of sources that are coming through these different channelers. Um, you'll also might find interesting that there's a lot more group channeling happening where channelers will actually, instead of just being this lone channeler doing their work, they'll work with other channelers and then they will, as they're channeling, communicate with this other channeler who's also channeling. So there's this sort of like multi-dimensional dialogue that's happening, which is incredibly fascinating to think about. Well, I was part of such a group okay. at, at one time. Many, many years ago, I was invited by a um, chiropractor named Dr. Richard Girak, who lived in the Bay Area. And uh, he, he pulled together a group of people and he put everybody into a hypnotic state. And then he'd say something like, uh, why don't we all go now? We'll fly together. We'll go to Marine World Africa, USA. Uh, let's see if we can find a dolphin in the dolphin tank. And one person would say, yes, I, I, I'm at the tank now and I'm approaching a dolphin. And someone would say, yes, it's a, it's a female dolphin. And another person would say, and, and her name is D, or it begins with D, and another person would say, yes, and she's sad, and she's all by herself, and she's not cooperating with the dolphin trainers. And uh, so a whole picture comes together that way, much, I suppose you could say, the way a, a remote, a, a professional remote viewer will go back again and again and again uh, to the target. A single individual could do it, uh, but in this case, it was a group. And actually, we called after that session. We phoned Africa Marine World USA and asked them if they had a, a dolphin like that. And they said, oh, you know, as a matter of fact, there's a female dolphin named Dondi who is separated from all the other dolphins and is cantankerous and won't cooperate. And uh, in fact, the message we got in our hypnotic session was she wants us to help her escape. And... <laughs> But but we our group went out there to Africa Marine World and began doing some telepathy experiments with the dolphin trainers and with Dondi and her her health and her condition improved so much that I don't know if this is a good outcome or not but the dolphin trainers were happy because she joined the other dolphins and became a regular part of the dolphin show that they had there. That's fantastic. I love that story. It's such a beautiful example of, of the synergy that can happen when people are in a group doing this work. Um, because I think it strengthens the, the connection with each other, but also makes it easier for whatever information is wanting to come through to come through. 
Of course, the supportive social environment, I should think, is is really crucial. Uh, I'm sure it's the case for you. If you go out and speak, every parapsychologist that I know, when we speak in public, people come up and, and they want to share their stories because they, they don't feel that it's safe to share with their family or friends. Yes, absolutely. This happens all the time. I get emails after every talk, you know, the person will come up and whisper in my ear, you know, I had this experience and I haven't told anybody. I find it quite fascinating that there is such a taboo and fear around sharing about this, and yet it is clearly so common. There's this misconception that it's rare and unique and bizarre, and yet it's actually quite common that people have some form of channeling experiences at least once in their life. So I'm grateful for you and your show for, you know, bringing and spreading out the word that actually this does exist on some level. People experience it, and how do we learn more about it? You did this survey, and as I recall, you you found that uh, 80 to 90 percent of people report that they've had some experience akin to channeling. That's right. We surveyed almost, it was 899 people. So we contracted with a survey company that randomly selected people from around the United States. So it wasn't just like it was the IONS membership, although it was split out into three groups. One was people from the general population, one was scientists and engineers, and the other was more selected to our IONS group. And so because of the taboos that we see in academia, we thought, oh, of course, the scientists and engineers are going to have much lower experiences. And we found that that wasn't the case that the general population and the scientists and engineers had the same level of prevalence of these experiences. We asked them about 25 different types of channeling experiences, and it was in the mid to high 80% of those people had at least one. And we're like, wow, this is really high. Let's look at our questions and the way we asked them to make sure that they weren't misconstrued in some way to be just normal normal empathy or normal hunches and we took out the ones the top I think it was four or five that we thought okay maybe they misconstrued this and it was still in the 80s so this is a common experience even among scientists and engineers even though they may not ever admit to it I think another aspect of channeling, which is really important, actually, is to look at what are the known cultural effects of of channeling right now. And I think uh, we've already talked about religious scriptures, uh, but you can look at uh, some of the great literature that's been written. For example, W.B. Yeats, a Nobel laureate poet, wrote a book called A Vision, in in which he described uh, his his wife going into trance and and providing him with a very complex mythological uh, structure that became the basis of a lot of his poetry. Yes, and you think of um, Kukuli, 
And the, the ring structure, that was, you know, like a channel dream. He saw the Ouroboros and the snake eating its tail. You know, we could come up with so many examples of channeled material and how it influences our lives. I wouldn't be at all surprised uh, if that also applies to scientific inventions. Uh, as I recall, Thomas Edison used to take frequent naps in his laboratory while he uh, was working on inventions. Right. Absolutely. And I, I think he would come out, out of a nap and all of a sudden there would be an idea. Right. Right. Getting dropped those packets of information. Yes. Mm-hmm. Although I know in Edison's case, at least with regard to the light bulb, he he experimented with thousands of different types of filaments before he discovered that tungsten was the one that would work. Right, right. So, uh, but he he was a member of the Theosophical Society. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there are other inventions. In fact, now that I think about it. I once received a great deal of funding from an inventor named Buck Charlson. He invented power steering and the hydraulic motor. And he explained to me that those inventions sort of popped into his mind, fully formed. And I knew him in the uh, 1990s. And at, at that time, he explained uh, to me the um, hydraulic motor he invented was in the 1960s. He says it's worked so well, they haven't had to make any improvements since it was first invented. Wow, that's amazing. We get emails like that all the time from people sharing their stories about how they've come to different pieces of information that have supported them in their lives in one way or another. I just got one the other day from someone who was working on their dissertation and it was in I think it was in chemistry and they couldn't figure out this one piece of it and then all of a sudden they visualized this structure and how it was all supposed to come together and they were able to finish their dissertation so it's fascinating Nikola Tesla is another inventor who uh, it is said about him that his inventions came fully formed into his mind and they work perfectly. Right. It's amazing. Halane, it's been a real pleasure having this conversation with you. I hope we have more in the future. You're a a rare person who combines uh, the scientific spirit with the uh, pioneering spirit of an explorer. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. It is an honor. Thank you for being with me. I uh, look forward to uh, many more conversations in the future. Absolutely. Thanks so much. 